Hi everyone, Ness Hughes here with you for this week's Daily Devotionals, which will be on the famous Sermon on the Mount, recorded for us in Matthew chapter 5 through to 7. If you were to read these three chapters aloud, it'd take you about 10 or 15 minutes. But of course, what Jesus would have spoken on that day would have been much longer. And so what we have recorded here is an excerpt, a, a summary that epitomised what Jesus taught on that occasion. What I'm going to do this week is actually then a summary of a summary. I can't drill down to every section of the Sermon on the Mount. We don't have time for that this week. So I encourage you each day to read slowly over again the material that we're covering to try and find all the treasures that are there um, in the Sermon on the Mount. But if we start with the beginning, let's have a look at the introduction. Chapter 5, verse 1 to 2 says, Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Well, like when Moses went up to Mount Sinai to share God's word with the Israelites, Jesus here likewise draws together his disciples to teach them and instruct them in God's way. Jesus isn't proclaiming a new law, but instead announcing what he believes is the legitimate and right interpretation of God's will that is contained in the already existing law. Notice that Jesus is expressly addressing his disciples. We should take this to be all disciples, those who have already repented and are seeking further instruction for their Christian lives. Jesus here lays out an ethic for God's people, which remains the ideal or the goal for all Christians in every age, including us today. But we must also hold on to and consider the already not yet tension that exists in this sermon. The ideal life of the Christian will never actually be fully realised until the consummation of the kingdom when Christ returns. And you'll see that tension throughout the week. And yet, this life of the Christian that we're going to see today is to be pursued by his disciples. The sermon really forms like a manifesto by which this new community of Jesus should live. And the church must try to permeate society with these ideals, um, albeit in a persuasive manner rather than a coercive fashion. So this ethic isn't ever purely personal. It belongs to the life of the church. But neither is it applicable to government. This is not the, set, uh, the setting of rules to govern civil society. This is for God's church, the people saved in Jesus, and they must take it to heart. In that way, it's only in him, in relationship with the Father, empowered by the Spirit, saved in Jesus Christ, that this ethic should be approached. So disciple for us here in the opening part of the Sermon on the Mount is crucial. Otherwise, it becomes a burden and a list of good works that is too divorced from the relationship that we have with Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount describes the true disciple and the attitude of God's church. 
So moving on right now to the Beatitudes in chapter 5, verses 3 to 10, which are now on your screen, we see a very appropriate introduction to Jesus' sermon, where Jesus reminds his disciples that God blesses them before he makes any demands on them. This is what comes in the later body of the sermon. This same sequence appeared at Sinai, where God redeemed his people from Egypt and reminded them of his blessings before he gave them the law. Now, each line in the Beatitudes begins with this word, blessed. And we're to understand that to mean fortunate. Um, this is describing the happy life, the good life. And notice that the last and the first Beatitude, um, we see God's kingdom present with his believers. And in all the others in between, there's some reference to a future consolation. See, notice the repetition of the phrase, they will. The blessed life of a disciple has a current and earthly expression, but it also waits for completion and fulfillment, as I've mentioned before. And so what kind of life does God say will be blessed? What are the characteristics of God's disciples? Well, let's have a look at the unexpected list of traits that we see here in the Beatitudes. So first, they're to be poor in spirit. And by this, it means a spiritual, a spiritual powerlessness, not understanding and recognising our spiritual bankruptcy. It's, it's those who feel their spiritual need. We see um, blessed are those who mourn. This is a grief over personal sin and loss and also um, mourning over social evil and oppression. God's people are to be meek, humble and gentle. They are to hunger and thirst for righteousness, wanting God's standard for justice and his way and rule. God's people are to be merciful, gentle and generous to forgive, having compassion and bringing healing. They're to be pure in heart. This is moral uprightness instead of ritual purity. So we're talking about inward cleanliness, not external displays. They're to be peacemakers, working for shalom, seeking out wholeness and harmony. God's people should expect to be persecuted. This kind of righteous living and allegiance to Jesus won't be universally received or accepted or even applauded in this hostile world. But whatever opposition they face, it actually never diminishes their blessing. Now, many of these attitudes that we see listed here have come to be widely accepted as virtuous in our Christianized Western culture. But we have to imagine how these would have been first received and heard in its original setting. It was a Greco-Roman world that prized physical strength. Uh, you should think of Olympic Games. That's what was going on at that time. They esteemed authority and status and all the outward symbols of that hierarchy. It was a culture governed by honour and shame. But instead, the disciple is blessed when they're lowly. They're blessed because of their other person focus. They are blessed when they are single-mindedly devoted to Jesus. 
This is the nature of God the Father and his Son Jesus. Merciful, reconciling, gentle. This is the way to blessing, not through strength or displays of goodness or achievement. It's through humble dependence on Jesus, whose spirit grows in us a family likeness with our God. And so a community like this, you can imagine, would be distinct, distinct like salt and noticeable like a light. So let me read by way of conclusion from chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And so as we look at these two sections of the Sermon on the Mount today, we see God's purposes for his disciples and his church to be blessed by God and then for them to share God's blessings with the world. Well, I look forward to being with you again tomorrow. Bye.